Welcome to episode 16 of History Stories for My Son, the podcast where we remember that history is a story that should be shared with every generation. As always, I'll ask if you like this podcast and would like it to continue, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review and share with your friends. This time, I will tell you the story of Mohandas Gandhi, the man who defeated an empire without violence. Imagine a courtroom in the imperial British style, all pomp and robes and wigs, a young barrister freshly returned to India from his legal studies in England, rises from counsel's table to cross-examine a witness. He looks the witness in the eye, or tries to. Then he opens his mouth to start the necessary confrontational process of exposing the weaknesses and contradictions in the witness's testimony. No words come out. He tries again. Nothing. He can't collect his thoughts. Despite years of hard work at public speaking to overcome his natural shyness, he finds that when faced with the reality of directly confronting another human being in a courtroom, he just can't do it. He just can't handle that kind of confrontation. He closes his mouth and sits down disgraced. It's the worst debut of a barrister anyone can remember. He refunds his client's money, and as word gets around, it seems like his legal career is over before it begins. The young lawyer's name is Mohandas Gandhi. This is the story of how that young man went from being a terrible lawyer too frightened to confront a single hostile witness to the man who famously confronted the greatest empire in the world, and won. Mohandas Gandhi was born on October 2nd, 1869, at Poor Bandar on the western coast of India, the youngest son of an important local official and a deeply religious woman. He had an undistinguished childhood, an average student who had trouble speaking up in class or making friends on the playground. The first sign there was an unshakable resolve hidden under all that shyness came when he was 18, and he made the fateful decision to travel all the way to London to qualify at the bar. The Mode Banya caste, to which the Gandhis belonged, threatened to excommunicate him if he violated their injunction against foreign travel. They told him he risked corrupting his soul with wicked Western practices. He went anyways, and was indeed excommunicated, and showed no signs of being particularly troubled by this fact. This wasn't because he didn't care about morality. Far from it. He promised his family that he would indulge in neither meat, nor alcohol, nor women while abroad. But he didn't accept the authority of others, even powerful others, with institutions and traditions to tell him how to live. In England, amidst an alien and cosmopolitan environment, he thrived. He discovered a vibrant vegetarian community there, became a member of the executive committee of the London Vegetarian Society, where he made friends with powerful and influential Englishmen. He did well with his studies and embraced English society, taking classes in elocution, dancing, and music, and was invited to join the prestigious Middle Temple Inn of Court, 
one of four English inns of court exclusively entitled to call their members to the English bar as barristers. His time in London was an almost unqualified success, and he returned to India as a promising lawyer and proud British subject, who would say later he viewed himself at the time as British first and Indian second. An unlikely future revolutionary, to say the least. But then, life took a turn. As we've already discussed, his attempts to become a practicing barrister in India got off to a disastrous start. So it was with gratitude he accepted a rather dubious proposition to travel to South Africa for a year in connection with a civil suit for the, even then, meager sum of £105 plus expenses. Upon arriving in South Africa, he discovered that he was a second-class citizen within the British Empire. In contrast to his reception in cosmopolitan, tolerant London, he faced real discrimination in Africa. He was ordered out of the first court he entered after arriving in the country when he refused to remove his Hindu turban. He was kicked out of train compartments, ordered to sit on the floor of carriages, even beaten and spit upon for such minor affronts as walking on a footpath reserved solely for Europeans. He later said one particular incident was transformative for him. It was one of his first train trips, where he was told to vacate the first-class passenger compartment, even though he bought and paid for a first-class ticket. He was unceremoniously thrown, physically, out of the train, and left abandoned on the train platform as it pulled away. He sat in the station all night, pondering his future. He couldn't understand how anyone could find pleasure or a sense of superiority in mistreating other human beings. Gandhi had always judged other people as individuals, and the concept of discriminating against an entire group without regard for any individual's actions or character was so alien to him that he struggled to process how anyone could think that way. Frankly, the concept of mistreating any human being, of treating anyone the way he'd been treated, was almost impossible for him to imagine. Yet he was forced to imagine it, forced to realize that this was what he faced if he stayed there. He thought seriously about returning to India, bad job prospects or no. But there was a part of him that thought that, that this would be the coward's way, and that he should somehow, some way, do something to oppose the mistreatment of Indians in South Africa. Exactly how, he wasn't sure at the time. It wasn't until months later, during a going-away party organized by his grateful client, after he'd successfully concluded the civil matter that he'd been sent to South Africa for, that he realized his calling. Uh, the buzz at the party attended by many of the leading Indian residents of South Africa was a proposal then pending to disenfranchise Indians, to deny the right to vote even to British subjects, were not of European descent. He realized that while many Indians, like his client, were commercially successful, nobody in the South African Indian community had the knowledge of British law and politics or the skills of a trained advocate 
to successfully oppose such a bill. Nobody, that is, but him. It was then that he decided to stay on. His first civil rights campaign was unsuccessful, at least on the surface. The bill passed, but in the process, he formed the Natal Indian Congress in 1894 and unified the Indian community into a cohesive political force. He also made the rest of the world aware of what was going on through his correspondence and advocacy. By 1897, three years later, he'd become so well-known that he was recognizable on sight by friends and foes alike. This created dangers such as when he arrived in Durban that year and was set upon by a mob who might well have beat him to death if not for the intervention of the wife of the police superintendent. This incident illustrates the extreme and opposite effect Gandhi seemed to have on people. He could inspire real hatred from those who didn't like his message, but he could also earn support from surprising sources, including many powerful and influential Britons. It's important to note that in these early days of advocacy, Gandhi was not yet opposed to the British Empire. He just wanted Indians to be treated as equals within the empire. Indeed, in 1900, he formed an Indian Volunteer Ambulance Corps to support British troops during the Boer War. He and 37 other Indians received the Queen's South Africa Medal for their heroism in carrying injured men back from the front under fire and over uneven terrain. One of the great what-ifs of 20th century history is what would have happened if the Transvaal government and the British colonial secretary had been just a little bit more reasonable, had they agreed to Gandhi's modest demands for legal equality for Indian South Africans, that might have been the end of it. Gandhi might have been reaffirmed in his earlier belief that Indians could and should function within the British system. He might have never developed the nonviolent resistance techniques that led to Indian independence and inspired Martin Luther King Jr. We'll never know because the Transvaal government was not at all reasonable. In fact, they doubled down in 1906 by passing a law compelling the registration of Indian and Chinese populations. Gandhi urged the population to peacefully refuse to comply with the new law, a technique that would become a cornerstone of his nonviolent resistance movement. Nonviolent resistance is sometimes called passive resistance, a phrase Gandhi deeply disliked. He disliked it because he didn't see what he was doing as passive. He simply refused to harm another human being or to permit his followers to do so. But he was actively, through his nonviolent techniques, trying to affect change. In addition to refusing to comply with unjust laws, such as the Registration Act, he arranged active protests where Indians marched in the streets to demand recognition of their rights. Often they were met with violence, but Gandhi trained them never to respond with violence. He taught them to willingly accept the blows and not fight back, not because they were passive, but because they believed that non-violently standing for the truth and accepting the consequences whether that meant a beating or even imprisonment, was morally right. And he believed that most human beings were basically good, and that when people learned of peaceful protesters asking only to be treated as equals being physically beaten without fighting back, it would shock the conscience of the world. 
He was right. And as foreign reporters covered what was happening in South Africa, public opinion throughout the English-speaking world started to turn against the Transvaal government. Given the headwinds of the time, Gandhi's successes in South Africa were remarkable. The Transvaal government ultimately repealed a three-pound special tax imposed on Indian residents. Customary Indian marriages were recognized after having previously not been. Women of Indian descent protested vocally against these restrictions, which basically refused to give them the same rights as any other married women under the British Empire. Gandhi also managed to obtain the repeal of some provisions of the Immigration Restriction Act and the Black Act, uh, the Transvaal Law that required every Indian male to register and carry an ID certificate was abolished. But the greater significance of what happened in South Africa is that it taught Gandhi how to resist and made him an international figure. It was because of his accomplishments there that leaders of the Indian National Congress invited him to return to India in 1915 and use his hard-won skills to advocate for the liberty of Indians in India. He wasted no time in organizing similar protests in India to what he'd done in South Africa. One example is a successful protest against taxation during a famine in 1918 or the widespread refusal of Indians to pay taxes, even when threatened with confiscation of land, ultimately forced the administration to recognize the reality that already existed and relax repayment of revenue taxes until after the famine was over. Another example is the widespread civil disobedience organized by Gandhi in response to a British law permitting indefinite detention without trial of anyone suspected of agitating against British rule. An incident occurred during these protests which demonstrate the strength of Gandhi's commitment to nonviolence and the effectiveness of that approach. When British officers opened fire on a group of unarmed protesters, the people rioted. Gandhi told people to stop and resist only nonviolently, such as by boycotting British goods and refusing to comply with British laws. When he entered Delhi a few weeks later in defiance of a British order to stay out, he was arrested, and the people rioted again, which led to another massacre where a group of British troops surrounded and fired upon unarmed civilians. This, understandably, only intensified the riots. Although Gandhi, of course, condemned the massacre of civilians, he was also horrified by his own countrymen's reaction, and he said so. He told his people that they needed to fight hate with love, and they shouldn't harm anyone or destroy any property, no matter the provocation, no matter how angry they became. Gandhi was so firm in his conviction that rioting wasn't the answer, that he went on a hunger strike and announced that he wouldn't eat until the rioting stopped. He was so beloved of the people that, as mad as they were, they wouldn't risk his health, and so, sure enough, the rioting came to an end, just as Gandhi had requested. But just because Gandhi stood true to his nonviolent principles 
doesn't mean that these incidents didn't affect him. Indeed, he gradually came to the conclusion that Indians would never have justice under British rule, and that independence was the only real answer. In addition to boycotting British products, Gandhi urged the people to boycott British institutions and law courts, to resign from government employment, to forsake British titles and honors. Gandhi thus began his journey aimed at crippling the the British India government, not by violence, but uh, through economic pressure and political pressure by making the country ungovernable because the people of the country wouldn't cooperate with it. His calls for non-cooperation led to him being in prison from 1922 to 1924 after being convicted of sedition. But his time in prison did nothing to temper his resolve. And by 1930, he led Congress to declare Indian independence, followed by a series of marches to protest British taxes on Indian salt. He marched 388 kilometers, that's 241 miles, to Dandi, Gujarat, to make salt himself, with the declared intention of breaking the salt laws. The march took 25 days to cover the 241 miles, with Gandhi speaking to often huge crowds along the way. Thousands of Indians joined him in Dandi. On 5 May, he was interned under a regulation dating from 1827 in anticipation of a protest that he had planned. The protest at Darhasana Salt Works on 21 May went ahead without its leader. A horrified American journalist, Webb Miller, described the British response. This is a quotation from his report at the time. In complete silence, the Gandhi men drew up and halted a hundred yards from the stockade. A picked column advanced from the crowd, waded the ditches, and approached the barbed wire stockade. At a word of command, scores of native policemen rushed upon the advancing marchers and rained blows on their heads with their steel-shot lathis, long bamboo sticks. Not one of the marchers even raised an arm to fend off blows. They went down like ninepins. From where I stood, I heard the sickening whack of the clubs on unprotected skulls. Those struck down fell sprawling, unconscious, or writhing with fractured skulls or broken shoulders. This went on until some 300 or more protesters had been beaten, many seriously injured, and two killed. At no time did they offer any resistance. Despite ultimately imprisoning over 90,000 people, the British couldn't contain the protests or the international condemnation of Britain's response. The government, represented by Lord Irwin, decided to negotiate with Gandhi. The Gandhi-Irwin Pact was signed in March of 1931. The British government agreed to free all political prisoners in return for the suspension of the civil disobedience movement. According to the pact, Gandhi was invited to attend the Roundtable Conference in London for discussion and as the sole representative of the Indian National Congress. The conference was a disappointment to Gandhi and the nationalists. Gandhi expected to discuss India's independence, while the British side focused on the Indian princes and Indian minorities rather than on a transfer of power. Lord Irwin's successor, Lord Willingdon, took a hard line against India as an independent nation, began a new campaign of controlling and subduing the nationalist movement. 
Uh, Gandhi was again arrested, and the government tried and failed to minimize his influence by uh, keeping him isolated. During discussions in 1931-1932, the British strategy was essentially to keep the Indians divided by offering concessions aimed at particular identity groups rather than at the Indian people as a whole. British negotiators suggested establishing separate electorates based on religious and social divisions. The British questioned the Congress party and Gandhi's authority uh, to speak for the entirety of India. Uh, I invited other leaders, including religious leaders, such as Muslims and Sikhs, to present demands uh, along religious lines. the British also invited representatives of the Untouchables to press claims on caste lines. Basically, the British were trying to use what I think today we would call identity politics to turn Indians into a collection of special interests battling each other for British concessions rather than as a unified people demanding independence. Gandhi vehemently opposed a constitution that secured rights or representations based on communal divisions uh, rather than uh, individually or as a nation as a whole, because he feared that uh, this would not bring people together but divide them, uh, perpetuate their status, and divert attention from India's struggle to end colonial rule altogether. He worked hard across religious and caste lines to try to present a united front. One example is uh, overtures he made to the Islamic community, uh, supporting the creation of an Islamic caliphate in Turkey and urging Hindus to work together with Muslims in common cause against the British rule. Unfortunately for him, the leaders of the Muslim community uh, ultimately went a different path. They wanted their own Muslim-majority country, and nothing Gandhi could say would persuade them otherwise. It's impossible to say in hindsight whether Gandhi's dream of an independent and unified India was ever possible. But what's certain is that, unfortunately, Gandhi made a a critical error uh, opposing the British war effort during World War II which weakened the negotiating position of his party in the Indian National Congress at precisely the time when Britain started to seriously consider exiting the country. Gandhi made powerful enemies of many leading Britons, including no less than Winston Churchill, who had never liked Gandhi's push for independence but came to actively despise him after Gandhi urged Indians to complete non-cooperation with the wartime government, and after Gandhi even encouraged the British people to use non-violence rather than waging war to oppose the Nazis. Worse for Gandhi was that uh, his comments got him arrested again for sedition and imprisoned for another two years, from 1942 to 1944. Other senior leaders of Gandhi's party were also arrested, and this pretty much put them out of action and empowered other parties who supported the war effort to position themselves as the negotiating partner with the British. The Muslim League, who advocated for separate Muslim and Hindu countries, had gone from being a marginal party 
to occupying the center stage of Indian politics. Gandhi tried to convince the Muslim leader, a man by the name of Jinnah, to support unified independence, but Jinnah insisted on partition. And it was ultimately Jinnah, not Gandhi, that got his way. And in 1947, as the British exited the country, India was split into the Hindu-majority modern-day India, and what we now call Pakistan, originally West and East Pakistan. A lot of people, at least in the West, don't realize was that what is now Pakistan was once part of the greater British India. This partition, which was very unpopular among Hindus, led to widespread religious violence between Hindus and Muslims, as most non-Muslims living in what is now Pakistan migrated to modern India, and many Muslims migrated from India to Pakistan. And so it was that Gandhi spent the Day of Independence, August 15, 1947, not celebrating the culmination of his life's work, but urging his countrymen to stop the riots that ultimately killed more than a half million Indians, and mourning the divisions of his country, which he had so vehemently opposed. And so it was that Gandhi was dead less than a year later, on January 30th, 1948, assassinated by an Indian Hindu nationalist who believed that Gandhi had favored the political demands of Muslims during the partition of India. Gandhi was shot three times and died. So, what is Gandhi's legacy? An independent India, certainly, though not in the form he envisioned. A philosophy and method of nonviolent resistance that earned him admirers and imitators around the world, including Martin Luther King Jr., his life wasn't a movie, and so it didn't end in unqualified triumph. He wasn't able to entirely put an end to the worst in humanity. But he was, for a brief time, able to remind people of their shared humanity. He believed that people were basically good at heart, and that if you showed people injustice, they would eventually come around. He believed you could defeat an enemy without ever harming any person or even destroying property simply by holding up a mirror and challenging them to do the right thing. His tactics worked because, at least as to the people of Britain in the early 20th century, he was right. Faced with the spectacle of people non-violently demanding their freedom, even in the face of violence and discrimination, the British people eventually came around. They did the right thing. And Gandhi didn't need to kill a single one of them to make it happen. Gandhi believed in the unity of humanity, in our common goodness, and is proof that appealing to humanity over violence can sometimes work is his real legacy. He proved that the things that divide every human being can, at least sometimes, be overcome by the many, many more things that unite us. The world would be a better place if more people took that lesson to heart.